and welcome to Counterpunch Radio. My name is Eric Dreitzer. I want to thank you so much for tuning in to episode 26 and uh, so much to talk about in the world today. And um, I, well, before I get to my guest, I just want to make this pitch for Counterpunch. I'll make it quick, but, um, you know, we just finished the fun drive of in the last few weeks and, you know, Counterpunch hit its goal, but don't think that that means that Counterpunch is rolling in the dough. It's certainly not. It's getting by, um, but it could always use your support. Ways that you can support it are by subscribing to the print magazine. Excellent magazine to get into your mailbox. Love the artwork. Love the columns every single month. Um, also, the of course through the website you can you can donate to Counterpunch there. You can support this podcast by going to iTunes and giving us a positive review, spreading it around to your friends. Again, the podcast is offered for free, uh, not only as a service to you know Counterpunch listeners and and subscribers and readers, but also because we want to try to bring Counterpunch to as many people as possible. So that's one of the ways that you can help us. Um, all of that is. I mean, the world seems so chaotic right now, and I feel very, very fortunate to have one analyst with me that I think is perhaps one of the best in the world that we have. Um, I read his work regularly. He's all over the place. Excellent, really, on a, on a very consistent basis. Uh, this is John White. John White, you should follow on Twitter at John White one That's W-I-G-H-T, John White. He is a regular contributor to Counterpunch. Uh, he is an author and a political analyst, and I'm very happy to have him on the show. John, welcome to Counterpunch Radio. Well, thanks, Eric. That's a very lovely and very kind introduction. It's my pleasure to be here with you. Uh, so, uh, listen, there is just so much I almost don't even know where to begin. We're recording here. It's uh, late November. I'm not sure exactly when people are going to be listening to this, but at some point in the next two weeks. And um, we're recording in the aftermath of the downing of a Russian jet uh, allegedly had violated Turkish airspace. Um, so if you want, maybe that's a good point for us to start. What um, What's your read on this latest? latest incident, uh, this um, what seems like an escalation or a provocation from Turkey, and how does this fit in to this larger narrative uh, around Syria? Well, yes, I, the nefarious role that Turkey has played in the Syrian conflict from the very beginning uh, has now been laid bare. Uh, there is no doubt in my mind, uh, I think I can speak for your, you in this regard, and, and your mind also, that Erdogan um, has been speaking the language of anti-terrorism to his Western allies, um, but uh, in truth he's been doing his utmost to facilitate and sponsor terrorism and extremism in Syria. We knew already that without Tur the Turkish border being a de facto revolving door through which uh, ISIS militants and militants of Nusra Front and other extremists and jihadi groups could move at will, that these groups could not have been as effective and could not have had the success that they have had over the last five years. But what we did know is the relationship between Erdogan and these groups was even murkier than we thought it could ever have been. Yes. And I think this was alluded to by Russian President Vladimir Putin at the G20, uh, recently in Turkey, when he talked about the uh, G20 countries that had been funding, according to the intelligence that the Russians had gathered. 
And it's now points to the undeniable and inarguable fact that Turkey has been a major customer for stolen Syrian oil. And isn't it interesting that this uh, uh, attack on the Russian jet uh, over Syrian airspace, I think it's safe to say, uh, came at a time when Russia started targeting the convoys that were taking this oil to Turkey. Yeah. And one figure in particular has now come to the fore in this regard, and that's the son of Recep Erdogan, the Turkish Prime Minister, Bilal Erdogan. And so now, as I say, there's the murky relationship and the role that the Turks have been playing in fomenting this conflict for many years is now laid bare. And it leaves the West with a very, very important question to ask uh, and to answer, rather. Whose side are they on in this conflict? Because the idea that there's such an entity in Syria as moderate rebels is a myth. It is a construct. Because if you look at the video of the Turkmen militia who are part of the so-called moderate rebel uh, group, shooting down a helpless Russian pilot as he was parachuting from his crippled aircraft, this is a war crime. This is a method that was uh, known to be notorious with, with regard to the SS in the Second World War. They were very well known for this uh, yep. this practice. Um, and then, when the, 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 then we see the footage of them dancing around the body engaging in religious chants and then even discussing burning the body. Um, the only moderates who are taking part in the Syrian conflict are the members and the soldiers of the Syrian Arab army who are fighting for their people, their homes and their country. Uh, a great point. Uh, actually, uh, quite a number of things to unpack there. Let's yeah. let's. I'm going to hold off on talking about the uh, alleged moderates here for just okay. a few minutes because I do want to return to this Turkey issue. Um, okay. What is your take on this? Because there has been a lot of talk for for a long time about various ways in which the West, the U.S., NATO, the Allies, the regional proxies, the way in which they have propped up and supported the Islamic State. And I think that some of that talk is a bit irresponsible and yes. some of it is conjecture, um, you know, saying things like, well, the CIA or the Mossad created the Islamic State, blah, blah, blah. There's a lot of that sort of stuff on social media. I'm a little bit um, apprehensive to really give too much uh, airtime or credence to that. However, in in addressing what you just mentioned with regard to, say, for example, the oil sales, this is an example of the indirect way in which the West, that is NATO, through its NATO member Turkey, is funding the Islamic State. They are, in effect, yes. one of the central revenue streams for the Islamic State yes. via this oil purchases. So uh, let's talk a little bit about that. Because it's come out in Turkish courtrooms, the transcripts of wiretaps and all of these other things that are now public knowledge in Turkey, the relationship, the deep contacts that exist between Turkish intelligence, Turkish military, and these various terror groups on the other side of the uh, Turkish-Syrian border. This is all now public knowledge. That's why the editor of the Komoriyat was facing a potential life sentence by Erdogan's government. So uh, let's talk a little bit about that. Turkey and NATO funding and providing yes. revenue to the ISIS. Yeah, well, when I was researching this, I just wrote an article on the on this incident and its fallout. 
I came across a very interesting report that was produced by uh, an academic at Columbia University. Oh, yes. David L. Phillips, and it was published widely in the in the Western Press, but it didn't get such a big um, exposure. And um, he, he came up with a very compelling report. It was uh, uh, drawing from multiple sources all over the world, mainstream newspapers, not so mainstream newspapers, interviews, etc. And he details that the relationship between uh, ISIS in particular and the Turkish state uh, security services is involves uh, logistical support, training, help with recruitment, financial support, a provision of safe sanctuaries, uh, medical uh, services, but also the fact that he alleges that Turkish uh, special forces have been actually fighting with ISIS yes. in Syria. Yes. Um, but one of the most damning testimonies that he uh, he reveals as part of his report was um, interviews he conducted with the mayor of Kobani. I can't remember the gentleman's name. Uh, obviously, we, 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 we recall the despicable role of Turkey uh, when Turkish tanks and soldiers were standing on the border of uh, Syria watching uh, the town of Kobani being assailed from three sides in 2014 uh, with ISIS fighters, thousands of them, uh, defended by the young men and women of the YPG stroke PKK. And they were willing to let that town fall and its uh, defenders butchered. And this was when we started to see the contradictions within the uh, so-called Western coalition and the NATO uh, alliance with regard to this conflict and crisis. But this report is very damning and it's very, very compelling. So uh, I agree with you in every particular. The funding for ISIS has come through NATO. Uh, because, as you say, Turkey is a NATO member. What we don't know, and you're right, we have to be careful that we don't go down the path of conspiracy theory. Um, I don't think there's any need to. We have enough information to know what's going on, and so we don't want to impute anything that we cannot verify. But I don't think the, the, this incident with regard to the downed Russian jet can be taken in isolation from the events of Paris uh, Beirut and the downing of the Russian passenger aircraft at the end of uh, October over the Sinai, because if we, if you recall, the no, the initial noises coming out in the wake of the Paris atrocity was people are now starting to see, you know, this is the time for a united front to be formed with Russia. Whatever differences we have with Russia, they pale in comparison with the need to confront this menace, which is now spread beyond the the Middle East and is threatening Europeans and innocent civilians and so forth. And I think that part of Erdogan's strategy here must have been to think, oh no, you know, things are changing here. The emphasis is now going to shift away from uh, regime change in Damascus to confronting ISIS. So I think part of this downing of the Russian aircraft in the mix must have been the, the need to deflect attention back towards Russia as an aggressor, yes, uh, as a force for bad in this conflict. Well, and so, let me, to that point, I just want to support your position because I agree with you that Erdogan in some ways sees that his strategic move here in downing the Russian jet is to force the United States and the other NATO members by virtue of Turkey being a NATO member to force yeah. them away from Russia, to drive that wedge yeah. between this coalition and to prevent... Yeah any kind of true uh, anti-terror consensus yeah. from emerging. 
Exactly. But it's interesting also that they had an emergency meeting of NATO in the way. And isn't it interesting, just on the, the Erdogan, the first thing he does after shooting down the Russian aircraft, and I thought Putin was, was spot on with this, he goes running to NATO. Yep. You know, rather than contacting <laughs> yeah. Russia, he goes running straight to NATO for backup. You know, I think this just obviously, um, this just reveals a character of the man. Um, but uh, Article 5 in the NATO constitution was not invoked which is the article which stipulates an attack on one NATO member as attack on all. Mm -hmm. So why was that not invoked? And I think that was at the behest of the United States. I think Obama, because he did say this publicly, says this is an incident between Turkey and Russia. It's nothing to do with the US. Our campaign against ISIS will continue. So it's almost as if he distanced himself from Ankara in this regard. Well, I don't let, me, know. let me let me ask you about that because actually um, I just recorded another uh, conversation with uh, Ajamu Baraka, Counterpunch contributor as well, yes. and I asked him this question, and I'm genuinely asking it because I have mm -hmm. argued a number of times recently that since the Paris attacks especially, we have seen, uh, I think, more evidence of a divergence in thinking between the Obama yes. administration and those close to Obama, his closest, most trusted advisors, particularly for the Middle East, and yeah. the, let's call them the more neocon strain yeah. in Washington, and that yeah. this divide seems to be yeah. growing, and yeah. Obama, clearly a warmonger with blood on his hands in yeah. Libya and many other places, but yeah. that Obama seems less willing to go to the brink here on Syria than the neocons yeah. are. Do you think that that divide is real, or is this merely just, say, a superficial difference of opinion with the ultimate agenda being the same? No, I think it's a very real strategic and philosophical schism with regard to the region. Um, I think it existed with regards to Libya, and I think it certainly exists with regard to Syria. Um, I, don't, I, don't, I don't conceive that any, uh, for example, Hillary Clinton, if she was in post in Washington, would have rolled back from the airstrikes against the Assad government in 2013. I think Obama did that. You're right to say he does have blood in his hands. He's not a champion of peace. He's an arch-imperialist. He's the CEO of the empire. But even so, within that, within those parameters, he was the one that rolled back because I think he saw the danger of getting sucked into an unwinnable conflict. And, he under, and, he, and I did think he understands that the... The alternative to Assad is ever more unpalatable and it's becoming ever increasingly harder to make the case that there's a moderate third force that can be cultivated and used and prayed the need for regime change uh, uh, in Damascus against Assad. So I do think there's a very, very deep schism, but there's also a very deep schism within the Western allies because the land... Uh, it'll be interesting to see what comes out of his meeting uh, with Vladimir Putin. He made noises uh, not in his address to the the French Parliament um, and Assembly when he said that the enemy is no long the main enemy is no longer Assad. The main enemy is ISIS. Isn't it interesting that he said that, uh, yeah. and then when he stood shoulder to shoulder with Obama, they both yeah. fell back on the talking point of regime yeah. change, but I got the sense, and yeah. maybe this is me reading too much into it, but I got the sense that they were saying it almost begrudgingly, like in a half-hearted sort of way, yeah. well, ISIS, you know, Assad needs to go, blah, 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 but, you yeah. know, the Islamic State needs to be destroyed, etc., almost as if they were, if not paying lip service, then at least less inclined to... To go the regime change route than they were, say, a year ago. Yeah, yeah. Given the, the, the resources and the energy that they've expended over the last four or five years, 
in making Assad the focus of their policy. Uh, it would be very difficult for them to perform a vault fast, uh, you know, even after Paris, to the extent where they're now suddenly telling their, their, their respective publics that it's actually ISIS and Assad is, is not as bad as ISIS. Obviously, we know that. We need them to do that. But I think that kind of shift is beginning to take place. And as I say, I revert back to this is, I think, part of the mix. This has to be included as part of the mix in the strategy being pursued by Ankara, the sub-imperialist uh, strategy that they're pursuing for their own uh, regional interests. So it is very interesting. But I think public opinion, this is a key point that we, we have to factor in here. Public opinion in the US, which you'll be more... Uh, you know, you'll be more in a position to to comment on, and p- certainly public opinion in Europe is definitely shifted in the wake of Paris with regards to whose side we should be on, you know, uh, wh- wh- what our focus should be on, what the priority is, and more and more people are talking about why are we enemies with Putin and Russia? Why are we enemies with this this government? You know, we have the same interests, and a lot, of, and I'm detecting a lot of admiration for Russia's position. That Russia has a has a position which is informed by a moral clarity, a clear purpose, and it's not um, it's not underpinned by obfuscation and the opaqueness that of of the Western position when it comes to 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 the region. And I think they see Putin as someone who can get something done because what we're talk to, talking here now is the Islamization of Syria, or uh, the, the Syria continuing as a secular state in which the rights of minorities are upheld and protected. That is the stakes now. There is no other uh, third option. Everybody can see that. Yeah, absolutely. I just want to clarify one point just so nobody you know, questions what I'm saying. I'm not suggesting that the ruling class, the ruling establishment in the United States or in the West has abandoned regime change, not by a long shot. I think that's still central to their entire strategy. I'm merely suggesting that Obama and his clique uh, in the White House and, um, you know, those who are his advisors are less inclined to uh, pursue that as vigorously as the neo. And that brings me to this point that I want to address with you. Um, Two examples, and I also brought this up with the Jammu, two examples uh, of the neocon thinking that I think really need to be taken quite seriously. On the one hand, a few months ago, former head of the CIA, General David Petraeus, arguing before the U.S. Congress that the U.S. strategy to counter ISIS should be the arming and training and funding of al-Qaeda. He's specifically mentioned al-Nusra Front as being a necessary bulwark against the Islamic State. Now, that is the neocons arguing for arming al-Qaeda. Simultaneously, uh, or not simultaneously, but also in addition to that, just the other day, as we're speaking here at the end of November, just the other day, former UN ambassador under George W. Bush, John Bolton, wrote in the pages of the New York Times that the U.S. strategy should be to consolidate and, and create essentially out of Syria and Iraq a full Sunni state. Now, in other words, in my mind, that is the codification of an quote-unquote Islamic state under ISIS's rule, um, basically arguing that ISIS should be made into some sort of a satrapy of the United States and of Western policy. So, um, Give us your analysis of this neocon position and the neocon thinking here and how you think that is going to translate on the ground. Is this mindset going to take over the uh, less vigorous one of Obama? 
Well, this uh, what you've just outlined there is tantamount to a new Sykes-Pico. And it's interesting when you consider John Bolton. John Bolton has long been someone who's had a lot of contempt for uh, America's European allies. Yes, if yes. you remember, in 2003, he railed against the French position. And he was also very impatient because he felt that the British, under Tony Blair at the time, were dragging their heels in their commitment to joining Bush's uh, war in Iraq. Um, so Bolton, we know, is a very, uh, is, is a very toxic uh, neocon. But he wouldn't say that. Uh, alone, I don't think he said that in isolation. I think he's 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 flying a kite, as yes. we say there, to see what the response to that um, to that article is, because I think he is still keen on the project for a new American century doctrine that was, as you know, outlined uh, at, not long after the demise of the Soviet Union, which was to reshape the world, in particular the Middle East, as a priority uh, in America's image and interests. So they see Sykes Pico as essentially a European settlement for the Middle East in the wake of the First World War. And now he's and now I think what he's articulating is we need to push a hegemonic agenda with the liberal use of hard power. Regardless of the consequences in the short term, he sees that that, that is the way ahead. So he's obviously full throttle for this agenda, uh, regardless of the disaster of uh, Iraq and, and Afghanistan. The, the the financial disaster, the cost in men, material, he wants to make that case. And obviously he has allies in the Pentagon and obviously the, the general that you've just prayed the name there, uh, Petraeus, is obviously on board with that strategy. So it's a very, very interesting, as I say, it's part of the schism that's taking place in Washington that's not a homogenous block Washington. They want the same strategy, but maybe they have different ways of getting there, getting to the end game. Um, you're right to say that Obama is not resiling from regime change. I think he probably thinks that it has to be put on the back burner because that can be the priority. So we'll see how this develops. But I do think what we're seeing is a declaration of a new Sykes-Pico in the making if these neocons get their way. And it'll be interesting to see. I mean, I've not really been following the Republican uh, uh, nomination process. Don't worry, uh, you're, you're not missing much. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, but I, don't, I wonder which of the candidates um, are actually voicing that uh, in, in, in that campaign, if any, or if they're staying away from that issue right now to any great extent. But it's interesting to see how this will play out politically as in, in the months ahead. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I just want to note also that the reason I bring up, especially Petraeus and Bolton, because these are not the only examples of this. We could point to a number of other ones, but Petraeus is in many ways the, um, you know, the 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 archetype or the you know the um, the representative of a very uh, important and very significant and influential strain of thinking within the intelligence and military establishments. Of course, yeah. that is where he resided. That strain of thinking. That sort of uh, yeah. mindset is deeply rooted in those um, in those two spheres. Bolton, on the other hand, as you noted quite uh, you know extensively there. Bolton is in many ways representative of a policy mindset and of the neocon policy mindset. So these two guys really are representative of the multifaceted neocon mindset. And that's why I bring them up. And now I want to throw into the mix also the think tank world, because we hear from the Brookings Institution multiple times throughout 2015 uh, Mm -hmm. papers that have been put forward talking about deconstructing Syria 
In other words, a de facto partitioning of yeah. the country along sectarian lines, the creation of a Sunni state, the creation of a Shia state, an yeah. Alawite state, a Druze yeah. state, and so forth. Now, yeah. to me, this sort of de facto partitioning is almost like a fallback option from yeah. failed regime change. If you can't yeah. put in place a puppet government through a regime change strategy, then bust up the country, break it up, and then yeah. reshape the entire region however you see fit. That's where I see the confluence yes. between these strategies. Exactly. And if they can do that along sectarian lines, it'll be easier for them to control yeah. uh, in many ways because, because they play off one side against the other. They know that Russia now is a main player. Um, Russia's um, intervention began uh, two months ago has actually been a game changer. And they know that in Washington. I don't think they expected it for a moment. Uh, they underestimated Russia's willingness to get involved uh, in, in such a, a hands-on way, in a proactive way. But Russia really had no choice when you think of what was at stake because at the time of its intervention, the, the Syrian army was far out. It was struggling on multiple fronts to hold the line. And we could foresee it moving perilously close towards the abyss. And so when Russia came in, that, that held the line. It gave a huge morale boost to the Syrian army, to its allies, to the Iranians, to the Lebanese, they now know that Russia is serious and that Syria will not be allowed to go into that abyss. It will still continue. The question is, you rightly say, uh, on what basis will it exist? Will it regain all its territory? Will it regain the entire country from the west to east? Or will, as you say, it will, it will revert to a, a, a kind of partial state? Obviously, we know that in the west of the country, most of the population resides, but in the east of the country is where the oil is. So that suggests to me one of the main reasons why Bolton is calling for a, a Sunni state and, and they're now trying to um, shape public opinion in the US to come to an accommodation with ISIS to some extent. This is obviously, as I said at the start, being driven, I think, largely by Ankara and by Riyadh. Um, they know that that's maybe the best that they can hope for now, but they do want something out of this in terms of a Sunni state, because obviously they, certainly the Saudis, their agenda is anti-Iran, and so they're trying to do anything to weaken Iran's influence, and Syria's part of that um, part of that project. Yeah, absolutely. Now, we're going to take a break in a second, but before we do, I want to throw one other related point out at you and get your take on it, because everything you're saying is absolutely true, but then we have to take it to the larger uh, the larger level and say, it seems to me, and I've argued this a number of times um, publicly, it seems to me then that the two camps where the US, NATO, the West, and their regional proxies on one side, Russia, Iran, and the others on the other side, that one of these divides in terms of their actual objectives is in fact um, that the the West wants to see the breakup of Syria, the, de the, the, the destruction of its institutions, whereas Russia is desperate to save Syria as a cohesive state. In other words, it's no longer just about objectives on the battlefield. It is about objectives for the political future yeah. of Syria and the region. In other words, if the U.S. and NATO were to get its way and they don't get regime change, they could achieve it by hook or by crook in a breakup of the country. That's a disaster scenario for Russia for Moscow and for Tehran. Indeed it is. I, I think Russia has a, a different agenda a, a, or a different understanding of what the stakes are on this conflict in the West and I think Russia's understanding is yes. absolutely right. And that is that the real danger is religious extremism extremism and fanaticism spreading out with the, 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 the region and into Russia itself. Russia's already had its own issues with that with regard to Chechnya 
And so it un understands the very real danger. I don't think the West really appreciates this danger, despite what happened in Paris, despite the 7-7 bombing, despite 9-11. I think the West, in its arrogance, thinks that that was a minor blimp. We obviously remember uh, Obama referring infamously to uh, ISIS when he took Fallujah at the start of 2013 as a JV team. Um, it's, it's nothing to worry about. And I think uh, I think it's right that he even said that uh, the Paris attacks he described him as a setback. So this man, despite all that's happened, fails to grasp the enormity of this emerging monster that's starting to spread and spread and grow and grow, you know, after the triumphalism of, uh, of the uh, killing of uh, Osama bin Laden in 2011. It's got manifestly worse, many times worse, and now it's at the stage where they, are, they have uh, an increased capacity, they have state support, we, have, we know that beyond doubt, they could not have succeeded and become so entrenched if they did not, but their ideology is now starting to spread. It's starting to spread amongst disaffected Muslim communities across Europe, in the UK and in France in particular, which has a particular problem locally with its Muslim community that's long-standing. Um, so Russia identifies this as, as a real problem. And I think you can imagine in Moscow, uh, President Putin and his advisors scratching their heads and thinking, what's it going to take for these people to wake up to the Frankenstein's monster that they have created that's now got out, out with its grasp? Well, what is it going to take? And I, I, I think so. I think we see a divergence in terms of priority. The US still has this image of it can, it can it views the region as a giant chessboard. Uh, upon which all the governments and all the different actors are pieces that they are able to move around, remove and replace at their whim. And this is now going to, this is now the blowback seems to, you know, it doesn't seem to have woken them up as of yet. So what's it going to take before it does? And this is, I think, the real divergence between both camps in this regard. I know I said we were going to go to a break, but I got to throw this in here in response to that. I think one of the reasons that you see this mentality from the West, which is, as you correctly mentioned, complete insanity, but one of the reasons for that, I think, is because the United States particularly has a long history of using terrorism, using extremism to achieve political ends. Of course, the Mujahideen in Afghanistan is a prime example using them against as a weapon against the Soviets, using the Al-Qaeda-affiliated groups yeah. in Kosovo, the so-called Kosovo Liberation yeah. Army, using the, or, yeah. the, the organizations in Chechnya, Ingushetia, Dagestan against yeah. Russia, and then, of course, more recently, using the Libyan Islamic Fighting Group, an Al-Qaeda yeah. affiliate in Libya yeah. to overthrow Gaddafi. We could point to many examples yeah. where the United States uses terrorism as an asset, and I think that mentality is one of the reasons why, as you correctly noted, they don't appreciate the danger of yeah. this sort of policy, whereas Russia, on the other hand, has been on the receiving end of that, and I think that they understand it perfectly. Absolutely. And also, in, within the U implicit within the U.S. Um, mindset with regards to this is an economic component. They think the biggest danger uh, in the Middle East is pan-Arab nationalism, and with its economic component, centralized state-run economy, um, which is an antithesis of neoliberalism and the free market, because this is an economic and social mod model that can be exported. So on a global level, this constitutes a threat to U.S. interests, whereas they think these Islamist states, 
they'll be by their very definition isolated because they'll be so extreme. They'll only appeal to a few people relative to the to, to the entire region, etc., and to the world in general. So I think the U.S. strategy is more a global one than Russia. Russia is looking at the region and how that how that blowback will affect could affect them domestically because it doesn't have the the global economic interest the U.S. has. So I think we're seeing a, a, an economic component that's been factored into the U.S. analysis and its policy with regards to these different actors. It worries. It's always Arab nationalism, going back to Nasser, has always been the main enemy yes. of the U.S. in the region. And that hasn't changed. Obviously, Syria is the last holdout of a, an Arab nationalist uh, uh, identity that, super, that cuts across Shia, Sunni, Christian, non-Muslim, which is a non-sectarian state and, uh, where the identity is Arab, and that's around which everyone can cohere. I mean, it's like an economic component is one that can be, you know, obviously we know that Syria was starting to liberalise its economy, and that brought out a lot of problems. But potentially, if Russia gets more influence, then it sees an economic uh, competitor here, and they worry about that because Russia, in a, in re, on a regional level, Eurasia is becoming more and more of a factor and an alternative to the US. So I think this is also something that we must acknowledge and factor into our analysis here. Great point. Lots more to say about the economic component. Let's take a break. On the other side of the break, we'll pick up the conversation right there. I'm chatting with John White. You're listening to Counterpunch Radio. Stick with us. We'll be right back. here on Counterpunch Radio. Um, lots to cover about Syria. I mean, we could probably go for hours, week after week after week, talking about this issue. And before the break, John, uh, you were mentioning uh, the economic component. And I think that there's a number of things that we should unpack as far as that point goes. Um, now, it, it, it should be said, of course, that when we when we say pan-Arab nationalism, originally, you know, we might have said pan-Arab socialism, secular yeah. nationalism, socialism. Yeah. Now, 
I don't really like to get into the debates about, you know, the extent to which Libya or Syria is socialist. Uh, obviously, no. it's not a socialist utopia. It's, you yeah. know, it's not a Marxist yeah. dream or something like that. At the same time, there are a lot of the elements of socialist uh, yeah. uh, economics, especially yeah. at work in a place like Libya and in Syria. But this economic yeah. component, this this counter to the neoliberal capitalist uh, uh, template, I think that's a very very important point here because as you mentioned if you look at those countries that were uh let's let's say uh fell victim to the so-called arab spring it yeah. wasn't it wasn't the kingdoms of the gulf it was the secular nationalist uh quasi-socialist states particularly yeah. libya and syria yes absolutely absolutely i mean if we look at egypt for example when uh, morsi uh, came to power as the, f- the country's first ever democratically elected president um, you know, a lot of his problems, yes, there was problems, he suspended the constitution and he moved kind of worryingly close to the jihad in Syria, sponsored a conference, we know that these were reasons to worry in civic society and, and secular society in Egypt, which is long-standing and has deep roots, had very, very serious grounds on which to be worried. But the, the IMF played a key role in making it impossible for Morsi to improve the situation, which was already uh, a, a very, very bad after the first revolution against Mubarak, because uh, Egypt was a prisoner of, of um, subventions from the IMF. Obviously, it had its uh, $1.2 billion a year aid from the US, which most of which goes straight to the Egyptian military, which has almost always traditionally been a state within a, within a state, runs its own commercial interests and so on. But the IMF was demanding Morsi if he he took over the negotiations for a loan that that was already being negotiated by the previous Mubarak regime. I think it was in the region of $4.8 billion. Exactly, yep. And uh, Morsi was asking, I think, for more, I think over $5 billion. But they were demanding, as as we we get from the IMF playbook, you know, an end to subsidies, uh, you know, an end to uh, social social programs such as existed, and that would have been the death knell for the Morsi regime, given that his social base was the poor who relied on those subsidies. Bring into the equation the economic crisis which hit that region particularly hard with regards to the the price of imports, uh, especially food, and it was uh, you know we were looking at a point of critical mass, and so the Morsi government was stuck between a rock. And a hard place, and this is this is this this is common throughout the region. It is has been vulnerable to these economic shocks because of the way that it's that the economies are so weak that they rely on U.S. Uh, dominated financial institutions such as IMF and the World Bank in order to survive. And so this is why this was another factor that made made the position very very precarious and made it very very brittle. So the slightest shock would have produced this tsunami. And this is what happened in Libya, and it went right through to Syria. Now, the thing about the thing about Syria and its economy, I mean, I've been doing a lot of research on this. I'm writing a book on this stuff. You know, the, the, Syria and Egypt uh, and Iraq had followed a Soviet developmental model. Yes. And that involved a very, very strong military because at the same time as they were trying to develop, they had to resist capital penetration. Which was hovering around the region, as you know, you know, like a vulture. So, decades and decades of colonialism and imperialism in that region have served to retard 
their natural social, economic and political development and they've put a break on their economic development and so they've had to, they've had to expend so much resources into their military, into, into upgrading their military in order to then have it beset by enemies on all sides and so the collapse of uh, pan-Arab nationalism or pan-Arab socialism was a seminal moment uh, in that region and this is, I think, was the, I think that is the key to understanding where all the problems began from. Wow. And, it, and it was a steady decline. And then the demise of the Soviet Union just accelerated that process. Um, and then after 9-11, when the US decided, OK, the gloves are off, we now have the pretext, we can go in and reshape the region um, and do what we like. Uh, we have public opinion on our side. And obviously what they, 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 they underestimated was what they were doing was opening the gates of hell. Exactly right. Um, I, I agree with a lot of what you're saying. Now, let me pose a counterpoint here, um, you know, and we'll get into my other my other comment in a second. But um, I agree with what you're saying. However, we should also remember the class nature of Morsi and the Muslim Brotherhood. The Muslim Brotherhood, where the deep state in Egypt, the Mubarak deep state, yes. the military, that is what you might call the the, the, the owners of big capital, right? The yeah. big uh, industrial firms, the big architectural development firms, all of that stuff was more or less under the control of these military types, uh, those with connections to the military and so forth. The Muslim Brotherhood, on the other hand, is what I guess you might call the petit bourgeoisie. These are business owners, right? These are not uh, those who are movers and shakers within the Muslim Brotherhood were certainly not the poor. They were not activists. These were wealthy capitalists. Now, this is a fundamental class division that existed in Egypt, and this is part of the reason why I'm not convinced that Morsi was really, um, you know, so apprehensive about the uh, you know the conditionalities that the IMF wanted to impose because in many ways they were the same demands that were being made by the influential voices within the Muslim Brotherhood slash the subsidies give more pro-business uh, policies the yeah. difficulty for Morsi was that it was unpalatable to the poor and that yes. was really the major yeah. uh, uh, conflict within yeah. Morsi's position was a conflict between his real backers and those yeah. on the streets who who were politically backing him. Absolutely. I mean, we, we do know that initially he did resist the conditions being set by the IMF for this loan, but then he began to change. Yeah, and the, it, the question is whether it was on ideological grounds, and I don't think it was. I think it was no. on political grounds that he was resisting. Yeah, he had, a, he had a choice to make, and he decided that he could sacrifice the poor um, in that regard um, because he, he knew that he, he could maybe enlist the backing of the military um, for such a position, he would obviously anticipate there would be a social uh, explosion with regard to to this policy. But as you say, the Muslim Brotherhood had won the loyalty of the poor, and so they were hoping that they would obviously be able to keep them on, on side. Um, and in the worst, in the last case scenario, they would, would win the support of the military. So yeah, he did become part of the state. He became part of the problem. And you rightly identify they were competing uh, capitalist interests at work here. Um, well, the poor- and- really marginal to what was going on in Egypt, apart from when they were brought out out onto the streets as foot soldiers. And as the man said, if you don't have your your own strategy, you become part of someone else's strategy. There was a lack of a coherent opposition between the position of the military and Morsi. And so they found themselves, you know, either having to line up behind Morsi or behind behind the military. And this is what happened. And now Sisi's uh, won that battle 
And, you know, we'll see what happens going forward. The position in Egypt is very, very precarious, as we know. But we know that the Sinai uh, is, is moving out of control of Sisi's grip. Um, and obviously the impact of the downing of the Russian passenger plane on its tourist industry is going to have a significant impact on what happens in Egypt going forward, I think. Yeah, and I, I want to leave Sisi aside because that's a whole other issue, but I just that's want to good. make one last point here about uh, uh, Morsi and the Muslim Brotherhood, specifically that this is a fundamental uh, understanding, I think, that people need, specifically, well, first of all, Morsi's victory, which was a very, very narrow victory yes. in that election, yeah, but, I mean, yeah. about yeah. as narrow as it could possibly have been, I don't, I'm not convinced that Morsi so much won over the poor as it was that the Muslim Brotherhood was the only political force that had a machine, a political machine in place to mobilize support on the ground. That machine, because of the nature of the dictatorship for the previous three decades, that machine simply did not exist for any force other than the Muslim Brotherhood. So Morsi's victory in that election, I think, is more a reflection of how Egyptian politics worked rather than a real uh, groundswell of sentiment from the people of Egypt. Absolutely right. I mean, the the opposition was defined by um, splits um, and a lack of unity, and this this came to play in the election. Um, and obviously, you're right. The lack of maturity in the political uh, machine uh, within Egypt, the political process, because of the years and years of a scleroric dictatorship, um, bore its own fruit, and it brought the Muslim Brotherhood to power really by accident more than design. Um, but it did bring to bear all the contradictions that existed in Egypt with the lack, of, as I say, of a mature body politic, a mature uh, political discourse. Um, and it seems to me that it will be many years before that is gained because I, I don't foresee anything changing. In terms of the, the, polit- the politics in Egypt, what I think might change is there will be many more social schisms, but I don't see any political force arising out of that in the near future. Uh, I I hope I'm wrong, but I can't see it. No, I agree with you. And Egypt is a very complicated uh, country with a lot of uh, internal contradictions. Now, let me make this other point because I'm really curious to get your take on this. One other thing that needs to be discussed with regard to the Muslim Brotherhood is their historical role. Because yeah. the Muslim Brotherhood historically has been used uh, directly and or indirectly as yeah. an asset of Western intelligence to break yeah. secular nationalism yeah. throughout the region, pan-Arab socialism. It was a major potent weapon against Nasser. It was an organization that was used yeah. over and over again against Hafez Assad and then and Bashar Assad, as we see today. Yeah. And yeah. it is in many ways the Muslim Brotherhood. And of course, the investigative journalism on this is rich, including documented evidence going back to the 1920s and the foundation of the Muslim Brotherhood, relations with MI6, relations yeah. with CIA in the 1950s. We could go into all of that. But the yeah. point here is that Hafez Assad destroyed the Muslim Brotherhood in Syria in 1982. This is part of the reason that the Muslim Brotherhood, the Syrian Muslim Brotherhood, has been in that Turkish border region helping the CIA to funnel weapons to stoke this war. That's part of the reason why they've been such an asset for the CIA. Uh, In many ways, the Muslim Brotherhood has been this wedge that the U.S. especially has used in the region to to break thing uh, these these secular yeah. countries now 
Erdogan is the Muslim Brotherhood. I mean, Erdogan and the AKP, the Justice and Development Party, yes. that's where they come from. That yes. is their ideological framework. And I think that is another explanation for why Erdogan pushes so hard in Syria, that in effect, at the macro level, this is once again a Muslim Brotherhood versus secular nationalism conflict. Well, indeed, uh, if we take this back to, to Syria with regard to that, and I'm glad you touched on the history of Hafez al-Assad because I think it's a history that's been uh, mis mistreated uh, in the West for obvious reasons. Hafez al-Assad grew up in poverty in Latakia. Uh, in the 1940s, his political development was really um, in, in counterposition to the rise of Islamism in Syria. Um, he he grew up uh, fighting with Islamists on the ground in street fights, and in fact, he was stabbed in the back as a young man by Islamists. So he he understood the danger of Islamism, and he, he developed a real um, hatred of Islamism because he understood that. Um, I, I minded on this regard what uh, Yasser Arafat famously said when he was asked what he thought of Hamas, and he said, uh, "I support Hamas when they are Palestinian, but I don't support them when they're Muslim Brotherhood." And yes, I think key yes. to understanding the difference. Great quote. Um, and you know, we hear about Hammer. You meant you touched on Hammer in 1982, and we hear about this in the context of the brutality of the Syrian regime, massacring right. all these people. What people don't understand was that was the culmination of an over decades long uh, struggle against the Muslim Brotherhood in Syria after the Muslim Brotherhood declared war on Assad and the Syrian uh, regime and secular uh, Syrian government. After the Hafez al-Assad amended the Syrian constitution in 1973 to improve the status of women and to enshrine the possibility of a non-Muslim becoming president of Syria. And this was the catalyst for this war um, with the Muslim Brotherhood trying to, as we touched on earlier, uh, replace the Syrian non-sectarian Syrian government in society with a, a Sunni uh, um, religious uh, government in its place, um, governed by Sharia law. And so we talk about there, were, there, there was real atrocities committed, there was multiple assassination attempts made against uh, Assad himself, um, there was an infamous incident uh, in the late 1970s, 1979, I think, when a military academy in Latakia was was taken over by Muslim Brotherhood militants and 80 cadets were slaughtered, having their throats cut, people being beheaded. So this uh, hammer was the culmination of that. And in response to this atrocity, that's when Assad says, enough is enough. I have to deal these people a death blow from which they will never, ever recover. So that conflict is trickled on into the Syrian conflict. And you're absolutely right to say that the role of the Muslim Brotherhood in this is absolutely central to what's going on and to what's going on in a region-wide basis. We hear a lot about Al-Qaeda and ISIS, but the Muslim Brotherhood is the original germ from which all this flows. And we should never forget that. And they can never, ever be trusted as a, as a consequence. Never trusted. Yeah, exactly right. Now, um, we were mentioning, I think before the break, you mentioned um, economic issues here. And one that, that sparked a thought in my mind about something that I had written uh, and, and talked about, I guess, back now in 2011, when this all began really in Syria, that um, in, in March of 2011 is when the, um, you know, the, the, the protests first began and when this conflict really emerged. But actually, in the months leading up, 
up to that point, there was a very interesting development that came out of the region that almost nobody talked about, and that was an agreement that was reached between then-Prime Minister Maliki in Iraq, the Iranian government, and the Assad government to build a pipeline that would bring Iranian energy and Iraqi energy as well through Iraq, through Syria, and to the Mediterranean coast, and that that energy would then, from that point, go into the European market and begin to compete, particularly with one of the major gas suppliers, Qatar. Qatar saw an economic threat to their own energy position in the European space, and that was yet another reason why Qatar went full bore in their support for not only the Muslim Brotherhood, which historically they support, but for the entire war against Syria, that in many ways the economic component, as far as the Syria war goes, is not only... uh, ideological in terms of neoliberal versus, you know, uh, quasi-socialist, but it is also very practical in terms of pipeline politics, energy politics, and potential rivalries with Iran, Turkey, and the Gulf states. Indeed. I mean, the the, the issue of pipelines was central to the U.S. invasion and occupation of Afghanistan uh, in 2001. We know for a fact... um, the great John Pilger revealed this in one of his uh, uh, articles uh, many, many years ago, that uh, a high-level delegation of Taliban uh, travelled to to Houston, Texas, to meet the uh, executives from Unical to talk about the prospects of getting a, a pipeline through Afghanistan to take uh, gas and oil from the Black Sea through to Karachi. Which is where Mr. Karzai comes from, Unical. Yes, exactly. And guess who was the governor of Texas at that time? George W. Bush. Exactly. Um, but uh, unfortunately, he didn't feel that the, 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 the Taliban was stable enough to guarantee the security of such a pipeline, so the deal never materialised. Uh, 9-11, lo and behold, here's the pretext. We can make it happen. We can shove them out of the way. So you're right to say that there's def- a definite concrete economic component. There's always an economic component in these matters. It's never it's never revealed. It's always covert. But that, but, but what you've outlined there between that, that oil deal between Iraq and, and the Iranian government uh, it makes absolute sense. So this buys into the Sunni-Shia split. The, 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 the Sunni, the Qataris and the Saudis and the Turks, they worry about the rise of, Sh- of, of Shia Islam, not, so not just religiously, but in terms of its economic strength and power in the region, which is starting to subvert their uh, position of economic dominance. And this is part of the desperation, uh, I think, that's taking place. And this is, this is what's driving, I think, the Saudis and the Turks to follow their own uh, interest uh, in a very, very crude uh, in a very, very crude manner, which is now becoming inimical to the interests of the Obama regime, which is desperate to return some stability to the region after a, a decade or more of war and conflict, because it's making them, it's making it harder for them to exercise some kind of authority and to counter the economic rise of China, which relies on that region, etc. And other countries in the global south are now turning to, to China because they, China is a more stable country. And it offers a more uh, comprehensive de- developmental model than the U.S. does under the auspices of the IMF and the World Bank. So certainly the economics are central to this. Um, and this, uh, I get buys into the, the Bolton uh, Petraeus um, uh, a vision of a Sunni state that can actually embrace the oil, certainly in Syria, 
and can actually act as a counterweight to this rise in Shia uh, economic influence in the region, which is obviously allied to Russia and indirectly and by, by definition to China. Well, yeah, and of course, the Shia crescent, which really begins in Tehran, stretches yeah. through Iraq into Syria yeah. and then into yeah. southern Lebanon with Hezbollah. That is a, well, in, in many ways, that's a creation of the Bush administration because of the war in Iraq, because yes. of the destruction of Saddam Hussein. It drove yeah. uh, the creation, de facto creation of yeah. that alliance. And now let me let me also provide this regional conception here because because it is really important for people to understand this. It's, it's in many ways the backdrop for the entire conflict in Syria, specifically that uh, rivalry between Iran on the one hand and Turkey on the other hand, where although Iran and Turkey have some economic ties, in many ways they are regional rivals. Of course, Turkey yeah. being Sunni, Muslim Brotherhood, Iran being Shia, and then, of course, we also have the actors in the Gulf, the the, the yeah. Reactionary feudal monarchies, Saudi Arabia, Qatar, the Emirates, and and, and Kuwait, and so forth, um, and to I guess to a lesser extent Jordan as well. These countries, uh, this sort of triangulation between these three forces, I think, is fundamental to understanding the nature of the conflict in Syria and the regional geopolitics. And again, it's part of the reason why you see Turkey and Saudi Arabia and Qatar seemingly on the same page in Syria because they've, they identify in that way in this rivalry with Iran. Absolutely, and I think they've, they've drawn much, much closer because they see that they're starting to lose the struggle. Um, you know, again, with Russia's intervention, the, the, the Syrian army have uh, staged an, uh, an offensive, which is having a lot of success uh, as we speak. Um, Hezbollah has has had a, a massive effect on, on the ground. Um, but what they don't have now, they don't have that overall protection of the US. They can't drag the US and its resources uh, to, to, to play the sort of, uh, the, the key hand that will turn the tide. And so, you, you know, they have no choice if they're going to manage to hold on to their economic dominance and geopolitical dominance uh, in the region. And so this is this goes back to Washington's position. Washington is really struggling to keep a grip on this. Um, you know, the extreme position has been set out by John Bolton, which is a position of a hard-headed realist. One thing you'll say about the neocons, they do have their own clarity, and they're driven by conviction more than pragmatism. And he understands what needs to be done might be unpalatable in the short term to the American public, but he's willing to try and sell that because they understand that their economic interests are dependent on the success of Turkey and Saudi Arabia in, in stemming the rise of Iran uh, and, and Syria's survival as a, as a contiguous non-sectarian state, um, you know, led by the Ba'ath Party and so on. Yeah. But Russia's intervention, I think, as I say, is given... They're panicking as a consequence of Russia's intervention. And so I think their, their fallback position is the formation of a a Sunni state. But it'll be interesting to see how that plays out in Moscow because I don't think Vladimir Putin, um, even though he's a, he, he's a very, very measured man and everything he does is carefully calibrated, he's certainly not someone given to knee-jerk reactions or to overplaying his hand. But I think because they've committed to this extent, I think they, they, they'll have to go the full way yes. and they'll have to make sure that the, the, the danger posed by such a state is met with uh, whatever it takes to make sure it does not happen. Well, John, we've gone nearly an hour and we're coming to the end of our conversation, but I have to make this uh, uh, this point as well. 
we cannot go a full conversation about this whole region, all of the regional dynamics, without in many ways mentioning, I guess, what could be seen as an elephant in the room, Israel. Because yes. Israel, of course, figures centrally in all of the politics of the region, Israel being part of the Western system, but Israel being a very, uh, let's, let's, let's say... Um, shifty and and difficult character to pin down because of Netanyahu, because of his policies, because of the way that Israel conducts its affairs. Um, In many ways, Israel is, I think, kind of a wild card here. So um, we've heard talk about Israel trying to use the conflict in Syria to permanently seize the Golan Heights. We've heard of Israel. uh, Of course, Israel has violated Syrian airspace repeatedly, carried out bombing runs inside of Syria. Israel has been documented by the United Nations providing medical support for the al-Nusra front, for some of the other terror groups fighting inside Syria who go over to Israel, get aid, and go back to fight in Syria. What do you make of Israel's role, and what is and, and what do you think Israel foresees for itself in this conflict? Is Israel intent on stoking the war in Syria, allowing it to continue and permanently break the Syrian state, or do you think that Israel may have ulterior motives? No, I think Israel's objective is very clear. They want to see the Syrian state in its current form broken up. I think they believe that they can deal with uh, Islamism much easier than they can with a secular Syrian state that's not sectarian. Um, uh, it's interesting, in the wake of Paris, we had the full mendacity of Netanyahu trying to exploit the carnage to justify Israel's oppression of the Palestinians, trying to conflate uh, ISIS with uh, Hamas and with what was going on in, in, in the rising in the West Bank and in Ju- Jerusalem, uh, which to, you know started to look like it could be the start of a third uh, intifada. So I do think he wants to see uh, Syria broken up. I think he wants to seize the Golan Heights um, and amid the chaos that would that would result uh, in the breakup of uh, of Syria. It would give him a great opportunity to advance his agenda of a greater Israel. He's a he's always been a strong proponent of uh, the concept of a greater Israel. Uh, what that pertains for the West Bank and for Gaza, who knows? I don't think the settlements are going to be reversed anytime soon. Obama's lost that struggle. I think if he gets uh, Hillary Clinton or any other candidate in the White House, um, he will be safe on that. And I think we're edging closer and closer towards. Um, you know, the Jordanization of that issue, whereas Jordan becomes the de facto Palestinian state and Israel takes all the land um, uh, as it's as an and that strain of Zionism is long uh, wanted. So I think he sees that uh, a great opportunity uh, is, arri- is, is emerging for Israel to advance that objective. Um, so yeah, I think he wants to see the breakup of Syria and he wants to seize the Golan Heights and then move on to his other territorial ambitions in that well, regard. And also, we have to keep in mind, major offshore gas reserves yes. discovered off the coast of Israel. Uh, yes. Israel looking at a potential uh, energy exporting future for itself. And I think that that is yet another reason why the Israelis were very keen on destroying Syria and preventing any potential for an Iranian pipeline going yes. to the Mediterranean coast. At the same time, we also now have uh, energy reserves discovered off the coast of Egypt. So there's a lot of offshore energy interests, I think, that play into this. I believe it was Nafiz Ahmed who wrote this up uh, maybe six months ago or so, um, that these economic interests, I think, figure centrally, the energy in the Golan Heights, the energy off the coast of Israel. To what extent does Israel want to see this regional chaos in order for it to emerge as an economic player and an energy exporter? 
Absolutely. Well, key, key. Israel, Israel has huge economic uh, ambitions. But I think what we have to mention, and I forgot to mention, is is Israel's uh, priority of destroying the threat to um, posed by Hezbollah. Uh, in southern Lebanon. So if it sees Syria broken up, then it understands that's a major supporter of Hezbollah. Hezbollah will no longer be able to receive weapons because this will inflame a Sunni-Shia sectarian split. So Israel was able to deal with the extreme Sunni uh, entities, uh, you know, Saudi Arabia and Turkey, uh, much more than it can deal with the Shia alternatives. So it wants to do anything it can to undermine Hezbollah's power. Uh, probably Israel is delighted to see Hezbollah bleeding men and resources in the Syrian conflict, but I want to see the threat posed by uh, Hezbollah to his expansionist aims de- destroyed and ended, and then it can deal with Iran. And, and if there's a Sunni state at his back and it can, it can ally its efforts with the Saudis in this regard, then I think uh, Israel sees that as a way ahead in terms of reshaping the region to make sure that it is the strongest regional power um, in alliance with Turkey and, and Saudi Arabia, which don't have the military capability of Israel and also don't have the same kind of support that uh, Israel enjoys from Washington, which has become really entrenched within the Washington, uh, within the U.S. political class. You know, I, I, as we're wrapping up the conversation, I just looked at my phone and I get a, I get a message, uh, a news alert telling me that uh, David Cameron is before the House of Commons arguing uh, in favor of airstrikes in Syria. This is not the first time this has happened. No. So I guess now that I have you, uh, you know, on the line, why don't we just finish up our conversation talking a little bit about British politics here? Um, yeah. Where does Cameron stand on this? Where is his support? How, to what extent does he have support for uh, airstrikes in Syria? Where does Corbyn, on the other hand, stand on this and Labour? Um, give us your analysis of that. Well, let me start by Jeremy Corbyn because he's a progressive in that group. Um, Jeremy Corbyn, I think, has exposed his, his, his liberal credentials when it comes to foreign policy. For me, he's very weak on foreign policy because... He started at the outset when this, these issues came up when he was elected Labour leader in the summer, uh, decrying the Assad regime as an oppressive dictatorship, talking about something he described as Russian aggression with regard to Ukraine. So this put him down a cul-de-sac. So there's the lack of clarity. So his his uh, message has been one of uh, a peacenik. You know, we can't bomb because it's bad. It's going to create more terrorism, etc., etc. But he's not calling for a strong position of us uniting against this menace. He doesn't understand the danger of this menace. In the wake of Paris, he was talking about, uh, you know, we need to go down the legal route. The, the people involved in this must, uh, you know, be made to, uh, to answer for their crimes in a court of law and so on. And this created a huge furore uh, over here, understandably so, with regard to his suitability as a prime minister. If this kind of extremism was to erupt in the streets of the UK, he's talking about having policemen trying to arrest suicide bombers. I mean, it was ridiculous. So Corbyn has been very, very disappointed in terms of proposing a counter-narrative other than no bombing, which is, which is good in a sense. But, you know, we're not pacifists. We're anti-imperialists. And we're taking a strong side in this struggle. It's a seismic struggle. It's a seminal struggle. Cameron wants to uh, keep, keep in thrall with Washington. He, like most British prime ministers, like Tony Blair, but though not to the same extent, he wants to be a major player on the international stage. It feeds into the debate on the replacement of Trident nuclear weapons and whether Britain should have them or not. Trident is a way that Britain is able to keep its standing in the UN and retain its seat as a permanent member of the Security Council. So he's all for bombing, even though 
British bombs will have little or no effect because every military expert has averred that it's going to take boots on the ground, it's going to take a ground campaign to defeat ISIS. And that leads us to the inescapable logic of who are those boots on the ground? Who are they going to consist of? They, already, they consist of those who are already on the ground fighting ISIS. The Syrian Arab Army, Hezbollah, the National Defence Forces, Iranian Revolutionary Guards and volunteers. These are the boots on the ground. So we, we see yet again a lack of political nouns when it comes to Cameron, which I think is fueled not, not so much by a lack of uh, by incompetence, but uh, mendacity because he knows that the, the alternative between Assad is ISIS. So he's trying to bomb ISIS, but he's not really tackling the problem because he's not willing to support those who are doing the fighting on the ground. And it's also going to constitute a violation of international law because without the cooperation of the Syrian government, it's a violation of Syria's national sovereignty. The narrative that we continually hear uh, being prayed in aid in support of British airstrikes is that uh, the Syrian and Iraq border no longer exists because ISIS are operating on both sides of the border. Well, wait a minute. Then you're buying into the narrative of ISIS that the border does not exist. So all these contradictions are starting to emerge. The British public do not have the appetite, despite what happened in Paris, for Britain to act uh, uh, unilaterally in this matter and, and uh, engage in airstrikes. Uh, they understand there are already multiple air forces from multiple countries uh, flying sorties over Syria, and Britain's bombs will have no marked effect on that struggle. So I don't know if he's going to get the vote in Parliament. It's going to depend on how uh, how many Labour MPs... Um, uh, uh, you know, go against Corbyn's leadership in this regard and vote with the government. So we're yet to see. It's going to be a very interesting moment. It's going to be a very interesting measure of where British public opinion is because I know from the last time where uh, the British were talking about airstrikes in conjunction with the US in 2013 against Assad that the British MPs and parliamentarians were overwhelmed with phone calls and emails from constituents and the members of the public t uh, demanding that they vote no. And that was the source of the British government rolling back, which fed into the Obama administration rolling back from those airstrikes. So we'll we'll see how it emerges. But John, but John, uh, many of uh, many of those people on the left who are constantly sending me emails demanding that I tell the truth um, would say that. Um, but shouldn't we shouldn't we do something about Syria in order to counter Iranian imperialism and Russian imperialism? John, John, what should we do about Iranian and Russian imperialism? Well, I don't know what those things are. I wish people could point to me. I, I really, honestly, I really don't understand those terms. <laughs> they do not exist, and they have never existed. <laughs> this is a product of the propaganda that's been, the mountain of propaganda that's been levelled against Russia uh, and Iran by the right-wing British reactionary press, even the liberal press over here. Um, it's been quite shocking in its mendacity. Um, you know, uh, there's no such thing as Russian imperialism, and there's no such thing as Iranian imperialism. It's risible to, to to suggest that there is. We know that. Um, yeah, and Russia, think, there, there, there was Russian imperialism pre 1917. Yeah, exactly. Under the czar. That's true. Uh, but as I say, this is you know this is where you know the Cold War never really ended, did it? No, um, certainly. Until uh, Vladimir Putin came on the scene in 1996, um, you know, Russia was being driven into the ground after the demise of the Soviet Union. Resources and assets were, were, were being bled from the country. You know, neocons had descended. Uh, the Friedmanites had descended on the country to deliver shock treatment and so on. And it was Putin that, that reasserted the primacy of the state. 
and started to arrest some of these oligarchs and started the process of rebuilding Russia. And my word, what a job he's done. Well, well, let me let me tell you, I was I lived in Russia in 1993, 1994. Uh, that was a very um, interesting experience, to say the least. I saw a country not only in disarray, I saw a country that was um, basically on its knees. Um, it, this was a country that was yes. utterly devastated economically yes. to the point yes. where you had um, engineers with PhDs sitting underneath bridges selling their personal libraries in order to have enough money to yeah. uh, put food on the table. And yeah. um, it's part of the reason why um, after the Wall Street vultures came in and asset stripped the Soviet state and, and took what they could, it's part of the reason why somebody like Putin um, emerged and why somebody like Putin garners the support that he does, because Putin in many ways represents the everything that is uh, opposed to what Russia was in the 1990s. Yes, uh, pride in Russia, pride in a Russian identity. It's interesting he's kept uh, a lot of the iconography of the Soviet Union, uh, the Red Stars, the delivery on their aircraft, the tanks and so forth, their military equipment, uh, the Russian national anthem. Um, you know, so it's, it's, it's a very, it's, 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 there's been a very interesting development of Russian national consciousness, which takes some of the best elements of Soviet consciousness and brings it up to date. Um, Russia has, uh, I, I think Russia has played a fantastic role in the world, certainly on the international stage. Um, you know, a multipolar world is being born as we speak, and his uh, recent address in front of the UN General Assembly was really, historians will look back on that as the game changer, especially the part when he looked up. I mean, he addressed these international delegates, really the, the, the you know, the US and its allies, uh, as I put it, as a, as a school headmaster uh, lecturing a, a classroom of recalcitrant schoolboys over the streets and errors. And he looked up and says, do you realise now what you have done? Yeah. And those words just hung it. I mean, a chill went down my spine and I thought, the world is changing in front of our eyes. Very dangerous period because of that, but we have to get behind that because you know this is there's a qualitative change taking place in historical events and the tectonic plates of of global power are certainly undergoing a massive shift. The key for me and the unknown quantity, although it's starting to grow in assertiveness, is China. Yes, you know it's it's obviously has its own uh, regional and territorial disputes going on with the U.S. It's becoming ever more assertive because its economic interests are growing, so it needs to grow its military footprint in order to look after those interests. I would I want to see and I foresee a closer alliance between the, uh, Russia and China uh, in years to come. China has it's kind of been quite quiescent in these uh, in these issues so far, but I don't think it can it will be able to afford to be as quiescent. Going forward, it will have to take a more prominent role in these events. So we'll see how that plays And it's going to because I can tell you the Chinese are not oblivious to the fact that a lot of the terrorism happening in Xinjiang in western yes. China is being fomented and stoked by Turkey. That Turkey, yes. with its neo-Ottoman outlook, yes. sees yes. those uh, the, the Uyghur population yes. as yes. of what they call East Turkestan. And yes. Turkey has been implicated in providing at least uh, covert support support to some yeah. of those terror groups, including the so-called East Turkestan Islamic Army, the ETIM, or the Chinese yeah. Taliban. So yeah. I think that China is going to be forced by circumstances to become more assertive, and that's going to force Russia and China to draw closer together. 
Yes, and that will be a fantastic development for us and for our side. Um, you know, it, it cannot come quick enough. It's already happening. Don't, obviously, it's already happening, but it needs to happen quicker for me. Um, but I, I, that, that is a real danger that the US uh, has to deal with and I'm sure is aware of in terms of uh, the global alliances that can be taking shape going forward. Because who are, who, who are the US allies right now? Britain is a, is, is a third-rate power, to be honest. It masquerades as a first-rate power. Uh, France has its own limitations. Uh, Germany has its own limitations. So I think I think the US is is really really stuck. Central uh, Latin America, obviously, there's worrying trends there, but I don't think it's any it's going to go back to where it was in the 1980s and 1970s anytime soon. It's not going to go back to being a, a you know a, a US backyard uh, under the terms of the Monroe Doctrine. Um, so it, it's interesting. The US is becoming ever more isolated with allies that it cannot count on that are becoming ever more extreme and that are causing it more problems than giving it solutions. Well, and that's part of the reason why the United States has consolidated military control throughout Africa to counter yeah. Chinese pe- economic penetration of that continent as well, yeah. because they're, yeah. of course, getting out, outmatched by Chinese investment yeah. on, on, on the African continent. Absolutely. And also the Chinese bring a, a, a different kind of developmental model, exactly. which uh, develops infrastructure, both schools, yep. teachers, and professionals. It doesn't just, China doesn't just extract China also inputs, and that's the key difference. Yes. And that's been a fantastic development for the African continent. We're going to have to have you back to talk a lot more about that because that's a major issue as well. Yes. Um, we're out of time, though, for now. Uh, listeners, I mean, you heard it. John White's brilliant. you got to follow his work. It's, uh, I mean, it's the best. It's, it's I mean... What can I say? His stuff is excellent. Follow it at John White One on Twitter. That's W I G H T White. Um, regular contributor to Counterpunch. Look for his uh, look for his book. Where can people get your book? What's the title? Where can people get it? Well, I got a couple. Of books. I got a book about my experiences in the U.S. when I went to Hollywood and I became involved in the anti-war movement and the Answer Coalition. It's called Dreams That Die. Um, and I guess you can get on any online uh, any online bookstore, Amazon, of course, and others. Um, I don't think it's covered by some bookstores. Um, Borders, I think, they carry it in the US. Dreams That Die is a title okay. by John White. Um, okay, fantastic. Excellent. Thank you. Um, listeners, uh, thanks again. And uh, hopefully, I'll be speaking to you all again real soon. And I'll have a lot more to report next time we chat. 